Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 18, Why This Waste? How did Mary get that expensive perfume, and what did it represent? What does Jesus mean when he says we'll always have the poor with us? Steve gives us his thoughts on these questions and more in the study of John chapter 12. Tonight we're going to be looking at the first half of uh, John chapter 12, and especially uh, the first eight verses. Um, first we'll cover the uh, Jesus being anointed at Bethany, and then we'll, we'll just briefly see what John's doing with a contrast there uh, with the triumphal entry. So, um, let me pray and we'll start. Lord, we just thank you for the richness of your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you use your word to speak to us. And uh, Lord, we ask for just a a gift of revelation tonight to come right from you. And uh, help us all, Lord, to to learn and understand and see new things uh, that we've never seen before, me included, Lord. Ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Could somebody read in a nice loud voice John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, please? Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was the ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And and having having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what, what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she, she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Thanks, Patrick. Um, while I just say a word or two, could somebody look up parallel passage, please, which is uh, Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 26, 6 to 13. What we see here from John Uh, I was thinking about it. I I can't think of a more uh, intimate picture in all of John's gospel of of just this closeness to Jesus, and it's it's quite remarkable. Three of the four gospels um, tell the same story. And um, the interesting thing is that, that some folks think that in Luke 7, the sinful woman who comes in to the to the dinner is the same, but if you look back historically with the the, um, the various commentators and the scholars, they say no, that's a separate incident. But the parallel, as you're about to see, between uh, Matthew, which is almost identical with Mark's, Matthew and Mark's account is so close to John's that it, it's not two different episodes. It's just two people. Uh, telling the same story. Could somebody read again uh, Matthew 26, 6 to 13, please? Jesus 
While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leopard, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar, very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head and was, while he was reclining at the table. When the, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why the waste, they said. This perfume could have been sold at a high price, and the money could have been given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? Has she, done a, she has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor will always be with you, but you will not always have me with you. Thank you. You see how close they are? We're going to point out a few small differences. Um, what we're doing, uh, and we're going to mainly focus uh, on John. We'll keep coming back to John because, as I've shared all along, the, the narrative beginning in chapter 1 is being, he's building it up very carefully. Everything is structured. It's like building blocks that, uh, that are very strategic. So we're now entering into the final week of Jesus' life, what's called the Passion Week. Um, it's interesting because what we have here is a, a celebration in Bethany. I talked a lot about Bethany last week. If you didn't have a chance to come on live, you might want to look next, go back and, and, uh, and see what I had to say about Bethany. Um, it literally means house of affliction or house of the poor. We talked about the significance of that last week. But what we have here is a celebration. If you look at all of the three Gospels together, you get a pretty clear picture. They're having a, a big dinner. It's not just a few people in the kitchen. And um, although John doesn't say so, the other two Gospel writers identify whose home it is, Simon the leper. Um, it's interesting because if you remember many weeks ago, the... the uh, the narrative starts to really take off. The first miracle was at a feast. It was the wedding feast of Cana. And uh, now we have another one at the beginning of this final week. And what also links these two stories is just like when Jesus turned the water into wine, there's this incredible extravagance. I mean, it's almost over-the-top extravagance. Nobody would need all that much wine, and what we've just read is a very extravagant uh, act from, from Mary. Jesus, knowing fully he's going into the last, the last week, less than a week, he goes once again to Bethany, to uh, the house of his just beloved friends. This is like his safe place. This is the place. It's interesting, they're never referred to as disciples, but as friends. Now, if you read some of the early church fathers, they suggest that, that Mary was a disciple. But we don't literally have that written in the text. But he's, he is with his friends. What's Jesus going to do in, in two days from there when he gathers with his disciples? He says, you were, I called you my servants, but now I call you my yes. friends. And yet what we see here is how important this safe place in Bethany was, this place of profound friendship. It's interesting, I'm going to just blend together the two that we read, the Matthew and the John. Simon the leper is uh, his name. Um, and it's 
pretty likely that at some time previously, although it's not recorded, that Jesus had healed Simon. Uh, because if he was still a leper, there is no way that people, A, because of the fear in those days of, the, uh, of leprosy being contagious, which ironically it wasn't, but, um, but also the, the religious and social stigma. There's no way people would come to a, uh, uh, his house. And yet, so he's been healed, but there's still the stigma. Oh, that's Simon the leper. Um, now, remember what I told you about Bethany? It means the house of affliction. And I talked to you last week that um, uh, there's some pretty strong indicators that, that Lazarus was chronically sick and maybe even a leper from the language. So now what we have is a, what was a house of affliction where Simon, not to mention Lazarus, but Simon the leper, the house of affliction is now a house of restoration. It's a house of healing. And, uh, and I, I want to reference Paul at this point, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.11. He says, in the past, some of you were like that. He just listed all the brokenness in people's lives. But you were washed clean, like Simon was. You were made holy, you were made right with God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So we've got Simon, who was a leper, there. We've got Lazarus, so he's there as a resurrected man, right? It's just, just previous, probably a week earlier, he, Lazarus come forth. So you've got this house of resurrection, of new life, this house of restoration. So they're having the dinner, Everything's going as expected. You've got Martha. Where would Martha be? Where would you expect her to be? In the kitchen. She's working. She's serving. And we see it right here again. She's serving. And there's no criticism of that. I think it's wrong when, when it's too easy for preachers to say, Oh, you know, she, she was just uh, works-oriented. No, I think probably serving was her love language. And uh, so we just see there's... There's, everything's going on. you got Lazarus. He's listening and just joining in. I mean, he's got this resurrected guy. He sees life completely differently now, a week later than he did before, right? But there's just life happening as you'd expect it. And then suddenly in verse 3, there's this huge, huge surprise, this shift. Mary comes in with a jar of incredibly expensive oil or perfume or Patrick's version I noticed said ointment um, it, it was it was an incredibly it was nard it was incredibly expensive expensive oil essence which would be like perfume for us it's so expensive as we find out that you know it's 300 denarii which by the way nowadays would be like forty fifty thousand dollars that's that's a, a denarii is a day's wages right so that's a year's wages that's incredible isn't it in this in this house in a town the house of the poor the house of affliction so how did that happen well we don't know but I, I wanted to just give you a, a couple of ideas um, because I think probably it would have been like her dowry this incredible 
expensive family heirloom. Christina and I, as we travel to Asia, India, Africa, we encounter women struggling to get a dowry. It's all part of the ancient marriage culture. And uh, I think it's very possible that it was that, this family heirloom or her dowry. And so what did it represent? It represented her security, her future, right? It wasn't like, oh, well, that's no big deal. It was, financially, it was, it was everything. So Mary expresses her love and her adoration and I would say her reverence, especially when we put the two Gospels together, she expresses it with all that she had. She took what was most precious in her life, and she sacrificed it, she gave it away to Jesus. And uh, it's interesting, because you know, that oil was used for anointing, as we're going to see in a few verses later, right? She's, she's preparing me for my burial, anointing me. What happened a week before this? She didn't use it on her. She didn't use it on her own brother, Lazarus. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Wow. So, the way it worked back then was an alabaster jar. And it, it would be sealed in such a way that you had to break it open. It, it wasn't a twist top. Like nowadays, once you opened it, it was opened. And there was, there was no turning back on that. Um, it, it, uh, it couldn't be resealed. So what Mary did, it was this abandoned, one-way giving of everything. She wasn't going to get any of it back. What we have here is, is interesting because in John's account... There's a couple of variations from Matthew and Mark. One of them is, Matthew and Mark have her anointing Jesus' head. Here, she anoints his feet, and then she does something that in our culture we can hardly imagine how shocking this is. She wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. This was absolutely scandalous because a woman only let her hair down in the privacy of her bedroom and with her husband. Um, it was incredibly intimate to do that and, and scandalous <coughs> to let down her hair in front of all those people was to make herself vulnerable and to make herself open to misunderstanding. She had to know I am likely to be misunderstood for what I'm doing. But there's this abandonment. She would have been labeled, easily could have been labeled as a bad woman, an immoral woman. Even scripture tells us that um, in that day, a woman's hair symbolized her value and in fact, Paul says, her glory. So it's not just hair. We don't have... We don't have a cultural equivalent, but it's, it's her glory, it's her, it's her value. In this case, it's her reputation. And when she broke it, the alabaster jar, it was then that the fragrance came out. It says it filled the house. Filled the house. So here's a principle for us. 
that we can learn from this episode. I've been thinking about this episode for a few days. The vessel must be broken for the fragrance to be released. No breaking, no fragrance released. God is released in our lives through our brokenness. We shared a little bit about that last week in terms of chapter 11. The house was filled with the fragrance. Let me go back to Paul, 2 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15, uh, verses I love to use in reference when I'm preaching. Paul said this, God uses us to spread his knowledge everywhere like a sweet-smelling perfume. Our offering to God is this, we are the sweet smell of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are being lost. The fragrance that came from Mary's offering of adoration touched the whole room. It touched everyone. So, in Matthew and Mark, she anoints Jesus' head in John, it's his feet. I, you know, some people get nervous with the variations among the four Gospels. In fact, it gives me added confidence in the veracity. If you had uh, four witnesses, and you called them in one at a time, and they gave exactly word for word the same story, we were talking about this today with some school kids who were giving the very same story. You go, something's not quite right. Because we don't, we, we don't testify, we don't record that way. If we were all here and there was an accident out on the street and we all saw it and the police came, we'd all give a little bit different. So I don't get nervous. On the contrary, I become more confident in the veracity of the gospel. So... There is, in Matthew and Mark, there is a nobility um, in being anointed on, on, her, on his head, the anointing oil on his head. In John, he's focusing on a deep brokenness. And I think, with, I'm, clearly, there's an even greater extravagance in John's account than in Matthew and Mark because... Not only does she break it open, she lets down her hair. I don't even know what a social equivalent for us would be. And she wipes his hair, his feet with her hair. So what she's done, the problem for us is we've read this for as many years as we've known the Lord and read the Bible. This would have been so profound. It would have been shocking. But it's also one of those profound moments a building block in John's gospel. And I think at the heart of it is about brokenness and about transparency. And we'll develop that more in a couple of minutes. So what is the response to this extravagant expression of love? It's criticism, right? In, in John's account, it's Judas Iscariot. In Matthew's, it's all the disciples. Um, John is highlighting the difference here between Mary and Judas at a deep level. 
Um, Mary is transparent. I mean, I can't imagine a much more transparent gesture than what she just did. Completely opening herself to misunderstanding, to ridicule, to criticism, and even to rejection. But instead, of course, we'll talk about how Jesus received her. But she is transparent. I, I adore you. This is everything. And Judas is anything but transparent. Not just because he criticized her. But John makes a point of saying, Judas says, why are you doing this? It could have been given to the poor, which is what the disciples said in Matthew. But John goes deeper. He says, but he was just saying this. His real thing is he was a thief. He was in charge of the money box. And, uh, and he was a thief. So he doesn't want us to, to miss this incredible contrast between transparency on Mary's part and pretension. Pretending. <coughs> hypocrisy. Is there any pretending in our lives? Is there any pretending on Sunday compared to what we're feeling like on Monday? Is there any... He's dealing with some deep heart issues here. And transparency was the way to press right into Jesus. Now, Judas was offended by her extravagance, right? He, he was offended because he wasn't going to get that money. But he was offended by her extravagance. And the disciples, it says in, in uh, Matthew's account, clearly, they were offended. This is crazy. This is over the top. This is ridiculous. What a waste. What a waste. So, why is Judas... Well, we could say Judas is upset because of the money. But there's offense there too. But if we project that over to the disciples, which Matthew does, why were the disciples so cotton-picking upset? Yes? When I became a Christian and first read this story, it offended me because it was so intimate. I couldn't handle the level of intimacy here. Mm -hmm. And that's how I picture that room full of men with this woman and what she's doing. Like It's not just about the money. It's that she is being so incredibly intimate with Jesus that they feel violated by her intimacy. And it took time for me to become intimate with the Lord where I then I was blessed by this scene rather than not offended, but it, it made me uncomfortable. Uh, you have anticipated a question I was going to ask to answer that. No, that's good. I'm glad you did that. It, it means we're on the same page. So why were the disciples so upset, so offended? I think it could be that was there jealousy for this intimate friendship that Jesus had with Mary and probably Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Was there jealousy for this intimate friendship Secondly, was there social contempt? Think of the first century. Women obviously weren't as important as male disciples. Jesus, why are you giving her all that attention? We're the disciples. Offense is part of this story. Transparency is part of this story. But offense is part of this story 
And I think we see here, through this whole episode, how offense blinds us and offense distorts our perception of what is happening around us. It distorts. Because offense blinds us to the other person, their motives, their actions. Even we don't hear their words right. We don't, we don't get anything right when, when there's offense going on. It's a huge, huge issue. And we all, I'm sure we all know there's lots of offense. The enemy knows how to touch offense buttons in every one of us. The church is filled with offense. What we see here is offense distorts everything. Distorts everything. And I'll I'll talk a little bit more about that later. So... Again, we've got this contrast of offense and this extravagant, selfless love. And if you're going to move in extravagant, selfless love, (coughs) pardon me, then there's going to be a strong likelihood of being misunderstood, a strong likelihood of being criticized, and sometimes even ridiculed. So they say this money could have been given to the poor. I mean, we all know that verse. What's your opinion? Do you think that the disciples are genuinely concerned and upset about the missed opportunity to care for the poor? What do you think? Hmm. Well, I would think. Maybe not. Because when they were feeding the 5,000, they were like, well, let them all go home and get their own stuff. I mean, it wasn't like they were putting their heads together saying, like, let's see what we can do here. They're saying, like, yeah, let them go get lunch and come back. Okay. So I, I don't feel like they... Was Jesus teaching over the last, because they've been with him for three plus years, would it be fair to say that, that on a number of occasions he talked about and demonstrated care for the poor? Yes. Is that fair to say? Yes. So if that is their grid, that could be part of it. I think that part of why they're so upset. It could just be, wait a minute, we don't do this. We're the guys who take care of the poor. Could be part of it. But I tend to think that it's a lot more about what Christina brought up, and I just tagged on to that there's this intimate friendship, this closeness. Remember when we were preteens and teens? And you'd have a friend, but you'd realize that you weren't their best friend. Somebody else was their best friend. Anybody remember that? And that that either brought offense or frustration. It brought some kind of negative feeling, right? And uh, I'm just wondering if that's part of it here. Because it's not till after this that he says, okay, now I call you friends. Interesting, huh? Okay. So, they're criticizing. And what does Jesus say in, uh, in John's account, verse 7? He's really abrupt. He says, leave her alone. She has kept it, the oil, she has kept it for the day of my burial. Matthew's version, similar, he says, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. So again, we're back to the nobility, pouring it on her head. 
The word, by the way, why are you bothering this woman? That word means hurting her. Why are you hurting her? Isn't that interesting? Jesus is defending Mary. And he's protecting her at that moment. Who from? From the disciples. There's an irony here. He's protecting her from the very ones he's walked with for three plus years. Imagine you're Jesus. You know it's the last week. You've been three, three and a half years. And you're with the, in this safest place, this wonderful home. And this breaks out. I think that would be very painful. Very painful. But he comes to her defense. He's protecting her from the disciples. In, in, in defending her, this is an expression of his love and care for Mary. And I think in doing this, he's confirming her dignity. All they're doing is criticizing her. But he's confirming her dignity. Jesus' reception of Mary's kind of over-the-top gift and expression of love demonstrates his sensitivity to her. Jesus is always sensitive to people. If it is the Father's will that we be conformed into the image of Christ, Romans 8.29, then the image of Christ, to be like Him, a disciple is like the teacher. If I am not moving in sensitivity to another person, if I'm not being protecting, protective of someone who's vulnerable, then by this standard, I'm not being a disciple. I'm not following him. So when I'm critical, I'm lining up with the disciples. When I'm protecting, when I'm choosing to understand, when I'm choosing to accept and receive what this person is doing, then I am walking in the image of Christ. Does that make sense to people? I love this. Man, tonight is Paul, inserting Paul tonight. I didn't realize it until I put it all together here now. 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. Think of, think of that house. Think of those disciples. Think of Mary who just blew her, probably her whole dowry, her whole inheritance. Think of that when you listen to these verses. one twenty-seven and 28, 1 uh, Corinthians. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And he chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And he chose what the world thinks is unimportant and what the world looks down on and thinks is nothing in order to destroy what the world thinks is important. How many times in my life, how many times in this last week have I aligned myself in my thinking with what's practical and the strong and the the well thought out and not align myself with what the world calls the weak and the foolish but those are the ones that God chose to shame the wise I think this is so 
hard for us to get. Especially when we feel offense rising up. Remember what we said last week from Isaiah 55? God's ways are not our ways. And our ways are not His. The very people and the very situations that we overlook, He sees as precious. So the disciples asked the question, Why this waste? And Jesus responds, Why do you bother or hurt her? She's done a noble thing. He doesn't even try to explain, Well, this isn't really wasteful because he just, he goes right to her side. Why this waste? Why do you hurt her? And then we come to this well-known verse. It's been turned and twisted a little bit over the years. It always bothers me. But verse 8, For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Matthew's version, 26.11-13 You will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. This woman poured perfume on my body to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever the good news is preached in all the world, what this woman has done will be told and people will remember her. Lots and lots of scholars have wrestled with this, the poor you have with you always, but you won't always have me. I, I promise you, as many commentators as you read, there's, there's different nuances and slants. What did Jesus mean? And when we say, what does he mean? Consider, where was he when he said it? Where was he? Bethany. Bethany. The house of the poor. The house of the afflicted. The thing that has been a challenge, and we know this, I know this, from doing ministry for the poor for years and, and raising funds, I have had people quote that verse to me more times than I want to remember. Yeah, but Jesus said you have the poor with you always. It's a discounted, to use your word, it's like, but I don't think that's what he's saying. Shane Claiborne, I remember reading him one time, he said, and I agree with him, he said Jesus was reminding them of their identity. You guys are going to be with the poor. This is how you are going to live life. And in fact, I'm reading a new translation right now that's incredibly literal, the New Testament, and it is stark what Jesus says about living among the poor. So I think on the second half, absolutely, what's been written and people typed in, and you guys, absolutely, that Jesus is saying, hey, I'm soon going to be gone. But this thing of the poor you'll have with you always, I don't think he said it in a dismissive way. Oh, well, the poor you'll have with you always. I think he said, don't forget, you are always going to have the poor with you because that's your call. That's what we do. But right now, be aware that I'm, I'm soon gone. And what we also have here, Jesus is connecting this episode directly with his burial. He, you know, she's anointing me for my burial. Used to be a book called Anointed for Burial that was 40 years ago read. That he was saying, he was calling them up, guys, there's a significance here you're missing. It's a prophetic act. It's a prophetic act, what she's doing. Um, 
And then in Matthew's version, it was at this point that Jesus specifically honored Mary. And it's like he memorialized Mary and her action forever. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, what she's done will always be part of that gospel narrative. I mean, I, I just got shivers. I mean, that's amazing. That's amazing. Why was this act so important to Jesus? And, and my other question is this. Remember, Jonah's writing late in the first century. Is it, signi- is it significant that this greatest honor, because no place else does he say what this person did or that person did will always be memorialized, will always be part of the gospel. It was this one. Isn't, is it significant that this greatest honor was kept for a woman? I heard a story this week that I just had to share with you. A lady named Maria took our small business training in Uganda earlier this year. With her newfound knowledge and some startup capital from Impact Nations, she was able to start a tailoring business in her village in Uganda. Her business was doing so well that not only is she able to support herself and her children, but she's also earning enough profits to help feed 50 orphans at the local school five days a week. That's the power of business. There are many more people who are waiting to start their own small business so that they too can support themselves and bless their community. You could help. Visit impactnations.com business to learn how you could provide the startup capital needed to completely change a person's future. And now, back to the podcast. I've tried to emphasize that Mary gave this incredibly valuable thing. Jen, you were surprised when I said it was a year's wages. You know, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars nowadays, and and that uh, she gave it completely. And so here is a thought that Frank Biola wrote down, and I, I and I wrote it down. What you give to Jesus reflects, in other words, is equal to his worth to you and to me. What you give him reflects what he's really worth to you. I remember listening, I say that, and suddenly I remember listening to John Wimber in the late 80s saying that that people don't give to God, they flip him a tip in the offering. Um, I'll never forget him saying that. that. That this incredible giving of yourself... This week, I had a, a, an opportunity to was sharing with somebody, and he told me a whole episode, and I'm going to be so careful how I share it, but the bottom line was this. His reputation had been badly slandered, badly slandered, unjustly. And the Lord spoke to him about not only forgiving in his heart, but an act, an open act that doesn't say, oh, I forgive you, but because of his forgiveness, going and opening himself up to the very person that slandered. And I said to him, you know, I'm preparing a study this weekend. You're like Mary because your reputation, like all of us, your reputation is so valuable to you. And yet you were willing to sacrifice that rather than defend yourself, which you had every right to do. To sacrifice that simply because Jesus told you to do it. So I think that there is a real application for us. And that, that's challenged me the last couple of days as I thought. What, what, I, 
What I give to Jesus is the true reflection of how much I value him. Um, can I just point out one other thing? That if we, if we begin to, to live an extravagant life for Christ, um, I think we can expect what Mary got from the disciples. Others will call it a waste. Why this waste? You know, when, when you hear, why are you doing this? You know, why? It's a waste of your money. Or why are you giving up your house to go do this or that? It's a waste. Or it's a waste of your time. When we hear that, uh, why this waste? Um, as Viola says, that's the gospel of Judas. I like the way he put it. Um, that, 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 that we mustn't, we must be ready for that and not be surprised by that. Mm-hmm. I've told you several times through this study, the single most often repeated saying of Christ was, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, that's the one who finds it. Okay, can we just, I'm going to take a short bit of time. I think if everybody's still with me, We'll go pretty quick. Would somebody read for me the triumphal entry, verses 12 to 19, please? The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on the donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the, the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, "You see that you are gaining. You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him." Uh, thank you for doing that. I'm going to go quick on the triumphal entry. And John's version is a little bit shorter. And, and again, the some of the circumstances are slightly different. In the synoptics, he's coming. He's coming in from Jericho and from the Mount of Olives and so forth. But when we put it all together, there's a couple of things I want to point out to you. I only found out this week that palm branches in first century Jerusalem were waved as, as a, a symbol uh, of, of uh, the desire for a, a nationalist, uh, even military leader who would triumph over the Romans. And it goes back to the Maccabees in 164 BC when they drove out the Syrians. They celebrated by waving palm branches and the tradition stayed. So the very fact that they were waving palm branches was an expression. The Messiah they're looking for was the king who was going to get rid of their oppressors. They were quoting Psalm 118, 24 and 25. It's a song of great victory, uh, of, of going through the gates of righteousness. So they were expecting this 
king who would rally Israel behind him to drive out the Romans. And I talked about this a few weeks ago. Um, this is still very prevalent, I think, uh, especially among us evangelicals, that there's this, there's this desire to have political power, to have socioeconomic power, to bring control to society for the glory of God. It goes back through the Old Testament, and we see it here again. But Jesus would have none of it, not a bit of it. Verses 14 to 16, he came <coughs> riding on a young donkey, which was a profound image of humility. I've told you before, he came in not from the main gate that was for the triumphant leader would come in on a big white horse with the people behind him. But he came in the back way, and he came in on a donkey with, with his feet dragging. Um, he was expressing something. Some people say it was, it was parody. It was, it was like a, a mind he was acting out. That may be too strong, it may not be. But clearly he picked the image of humility, a, a small donkey, and he came in the back way, the exact opposite to the way the triumphant leaders come in. And looking from the perspective of years later, when the Gospels were written, he even says they didn't recognize what was going on at the time, but as they looked back, they went, oh, this is in both John and Matthew. They quote Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Proclaim it aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes to you. He is righteous and saving. He is gentle and mounted upon a donkey, even a young colt. This is a different kind of triumph. It is the triumph of humility over pride. It is sacrificial, canonic love. I, I use that word again from kenosis, a self-emptying love. Um, <coughs> pardon me, triumphing over power. That's what this is all about. And then, really interesting, what Dan read, verse 17 and 18 John is presenting a profound contrast between what we've just gone through and this. Mary's unreserved, extravagant, and deep devotion to Jesus, whom she knew to be God. Right? We've gone through that. So she was there out of deep devotion, deep relationship. The contrast is, the crowd's attraction was to the miracles especially raising up Lazarus. There's nothing specifically wrong with this. Uh, Jesus said in John 10, 38, and in John 14, 11, he said, if you can't believe me, believe the miracles. They point to me. But it has not got the solid foundation that Mary had because it's not built upon relationship with Jesus. So what happens in just a few days? The very crowds that are waving the palms, the same crowd, they turn against Jesus, and we know that every one of them either specifically called for his crucifixion or they abandoned him. No, none of them stayed with him. Mary, however, is traditionally believed to be one of the, what are called the, the myrrh bearers. The myrrh bearers in, in uh, the ancient church tradition were the women who came to Jesus' grave with the spices to prepare his body. 
Um, Luke 24, verse 1, they showed up and that's when they found out he wasn't there. In other words, Mary never left him. Even after he died, she never left him. So I think John is giving us this contrast. It's not just the fickleness of the crowd. It's that relationship, deep relationship with Jesus establishes something in us that cannot be shaken. When we have, uh, uh, we, we have a coming and a proximity to Jesus for what we can see, what we can get, what he's done, that is very shakable. So, here's a few conclusions from tonight. Um, I said to you last week, there can be no resurrection without a burial. Remember we talked about that? If there's no burial, there's no resurrection. This week, very similarly, the fragrance of Christ is released in our lives through our, what? Brokenness. Brokenness. John is reinforcing the same theme. Um, Offense is a powerful force that never leads us to Christ. It is unjustifiable at one level. I mean, we can all think of stuff that has been done to us that is just lousy and that hurts and is everything. But if I choose offense, I am not leaning into but away from Jesus. I'm following, in this example, the disciples and not Mary. Join us again next week for the second half of John chapter 12. And don't forget to email your questions to podcast at impactnations.com. In the meantime, please go have a look at impactnations.com slash business to learn how you could help start a small business in Uganda. Thanks, and have a great week.